0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are beginning John chapter 3 today, so we only have, what, uh, 19 chapters to go. You know, we're making some real progress here. Um, it seems like we just began this. Um, in our last study, we finished chapter 2, and this chapter really focused on new beginnings brought about by Yeshua in His ministry. We saw Him turn water into wine, and then we saw Him go into the temple in Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. So, it seems to me that first and foremost, the sign that we saw of turning water into wine in the beginning of this Gospel is designed to indicate the inauguration of a new age. The age of law was passing away, and the age of fulfillment and everything it anticipated is coming to fulfillment. Lazarus said in the opening of the chapter, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua the Christ. And here we have one of the indications of that. We have these water pots that were used for the Jewish ritual of cleansing. Now the Lord transforms the water into the wine of the new covenant grace and its forgiveness of sins. The wine replacing the water in essence symbolized the replacement of the old covenant with the superabundance of the new covenant. Then in the second half of chapter two, we saw Yeshua cleansing the temple. And if you remember, we talked about that. Here is this man. He goes into the temple. He has a braided rope, basically. And he just starts driving people out, tipping tables over. And, and you know, it's curious. How does he get away with this? You know, how does it happen? How does everybody just stand by and let this go on? I mean, they had temple police in there. They were armed. And yet he does this. And so their response to him is, how do you do this? Show us a sign. Why are you doing this? And he responded and answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So they asked for a sign, and he says, here's a sign that you're going to get. That sign is my resurrection. You're going to destroy this temple. By that he's referring to his physical body. You will destroy it. I will raise it up. I will defeat death, I will defeat the grave, and I will come back to life. Now, the body of the risen Christ is the spiritual temple from which the living waters of salvation flow. Yeshua is, in this text, declaring Himself personally and His body, the church, to be the new true temple. The physical resurrection of Christ's body is the foundation for His new covenant people being constituted as the temple of God. Now since the destruction of Jerusalem, there are no more sacred buildings. There's no more sacred places. Yeshua Himself is our temple. We don't have to go to a certain place to worship God. We don't have to go to a cathedral. We don't have to enter a church building. We meet with God in the person of Yeshua. We dwell in Him. He dwells in us. Believers, we are Sacred space. Sacred space is what the temple used to be considered. That's where God dwelled. We're sacred space now because Yahweh dwells in us. It's not about a place. It's not about a certain set of circumstances. It's about worshiping God in the Spirit. Now, chapter 3 continues this emphasis on new beginnings with the dialogue between Yeshua and this chief person in the Jewish religion named Nicodemus. And as we come to chapter 3, I want you to be aware of uh, something that's kind of difficult with this text. It's difficult as you're reading the Gospel, and we'll see this in chapter 3, to determine where the words of Yeshua in the conversation with Nicodemus end, and where Lazarus' comments about Yeshua begin. And scholars mention the fact that one of the difficulties of working with the 4th Gospel is knowing for sure When Yeshua is speaking, and when Lazarus is commenting or interpreting on the teaching of Yeshua. Now you might say, well, that's simple because my Bible, the the words of the Lord are in red. Well, you you understand that when he spoke them, they didn't come out in red, right? That's a that's an interpreter's decision to put certain words in red and other words not in red. So that's you know, you really can't always trust that. It's difficult here, all right? All right, so the dialogue between Yeshua and Nicodemus. continues the contrast between Yeshua and Judaism that began in chapter 2. And in chapter 3 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now is day in the Greek. And if day has its more usual adversative force, it means but here. But. It's a contrast. And I think the contrast is between those who believed... If you back up into chapter 2, verse 23, it says, they saw the signs and they believed. And so here's a contrast between those who saw the signs and believed with Nicodemus who saw the same signs and didn't believe. All right. He says, we know your teacher come from God, but he didn't believe. He didn't trust Christ. So I think that's what the contrast is here. And he says, there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, in many of the modern translations, we miss the important three-part repetition here of the word man. So we back up in the text of Scripture, the end of chapter 2, and you remember that there's no chapter and verse divisions in the original Scripture. Men put these in. It's helpful, but sometimes they're in the wrong place. Alright, the end of chapter 2 says, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus, Nicodemus is being described as a man. appears there's a deliberate connection here with the previous verse. So we see him as a man whose heart Yeshua knew because he says he himself knew what was in man. And then, well, now there was a man. And so Yeshua knows his heart. That's what he's trying to emphasize here. He knew what was in man, so he knew exactly what was going on in Nicodemus. Now, I think what we need to see here is that in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's stated that only God knows the heart. If we look at a passage like 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon is praying in the dedication of the temple. In verse 28, he says, Solomon's praying, he says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this supplication, O Yahweh my God. To listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you today. So Solomon is praying to Yahweh. And in the midst of this prayer of dedication, he says this. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So Solomon says that only God, only Yahweh knows the hearts of men. But here in John 2, we see that Yeshua knew what was in men. I think the obvious conclusion here is Yeshua is Yahweh. And that's what he's trying to get us to see. Yeshua is God. He is Yahweh. So here we meet a man whose name is Nicodemus. Now, it's a little bit surprising because this is a Greek name. I mean, he's a Jew. He's living in Palestine. And yet, he's got a Greek name. Well, we saw that earlier though with Philip and Andrew also had Greek names. This Greek name means people crusher or conqueror of the people. That's kind of a fitting name for a member of the Pharisees, okay? I mean, they had a harsh interpretation of the law of Moses and they really made it oppressive for the people. So people crusher, that would be a good fitting name for Nicodemus, all right? This name is really common among the Jews at this time in history. There are several prominent bearings, you know, people with this name. And I read a lot of stuff where people trying to say, well, that was this guy from here, was that guy from there? And I don't know, and I don't think that really matters because that's not what the story is about. All right? He's a representative of Judaism at its height. That's what I think he's trying to tell us here. But there's a lot of different guys' named. When this Nicodemus is mentioned three times in this Gospel... Here in chapter 7 and in chapter 19, he's not mentioned in any other Gospels. We only see Nicodemus in the fourth Gospel. Now, Lazarus tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, when you hear that, you come up with a negative connotation right away, right? These Pharisees, they're bad guys. Well, it wasn't always that way, all right? The Pharisaic party originated, it seems, during the period preceding the Maccabean Wars, which was a century or so before the time of Yeshua. And the attitudes that these men originated were kind of a reaction against the secularism of Hellenism of the day. And so they were just trying to be separate from that faith that seemed to be sliding away. And they wanted to preserve Judaism. They wanted to honor the law. And they wanted to be good people. So it started out right. That's how it usually happens with Pharisees. You know? You want to be all God's called you to be. Do you make sure I'm reading my Bible every day? I'm spending time in prayer. I'm doing all these things. And then you meet someone who's not doing those things, and you're like, you're not right. How can you be right with God? You're not doing what I'm doing. See, that's you become a Pharisee. But it starts out right because you're doing these things. These are good things. These are right things. And so you feel spiritual. But someone else is not doing them, so guess what? They're not spiritual. And that's what happens with Pharisees. We begin to judge other people, and that's exactly what happened with these guys. At the time of Yeshua, um, Josephus tells us there were about 6,000 Pharisees at that time. They were the most devout, the most conscientious keepers of the law. Not only Scripture, <laughs> that would have been fine if they just... But other laws that they made up. See, this is one of the problems, you know, and Pharisees do that. Pharisees make up other laws that they think are right, and then they try to put them on other people. And see, if you make up laws or you make up guidelines for yourself, I shouldn't do this or that... That's okay. The problem comes when you start putting those laws on other people. Not in Scripture. We don't need extra things to you to put on people. Alright? The word Pharisee comes from a word meaning separated. They were separated people. They were separated from the rest of people by their devotion to the law. They were separated from sin, separated from evil, et cetera. Et cetera. They were at their heart, though, of apostate Judaism. These people who thought they were so righteous... So good before God, they were literally in the midst of this corrupt system at that time. Now, if you study the doctrine of the Pharisees, they had a lot of things right. I mean, they believed in predestination, they believed in man's moral responsibility, they believed in the resurrection of the body, contrary to the Sadducees, and that's why they were sad, you see. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, alright? They believed in the existence of angels and spirits. Sadducees didn't. They believed in rewards and punishment in the future life. And they produced men of unusual skill and renown. Men such as Gamaliel, who the apostle Paul studied under. There was Paul himself. Paul was a Pharisee. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he was also a Pharisee. Well, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus had respect for the Jewish scriptures. And he was nationalistic politically. He would have stressed the careful observance of Israel's laws and the traditions of the elders as the way of salvation for the Pharisees. See, they really thought they could redeem themselves by their obedience to the law. Well, Yeshua denounced the Pharisees because in His time, they had become characterized by exhibitionism, by a holier-than-thou attitude. They loved to pray in the marketplaces so people would see them. You know, they loved to sit in the prominent seats. It was all about them by the time of Christ. And again, they started out good. It started as a right movement. But they just became self-righteous. Listen to the testimony of a Pharisee that you know pretty well. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, my humanity, the the things I've done, I can brag about that. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I'm far more. In other words, I'm way ahead of you guys in in fleshly accomplishments, alright? He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I don't know how he could brag about that. In other words, I guess he's saying I had the right parentage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to the righteousness which was in the law, blameless. He saw himself, I'm perfect. I'm blameless. I'm spotless in the midst of this law. I am just a great, great Pharisee. That's the testimony of Paul the Pharisee. He says, I dotted every I, I crossed every T, I observed the law, I was kosher, I carried out the traditions, I did it all. It really came down to some bizarre minutia. There are records that tell us... (laughs) For example, that a Pharisee could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Now, they didn't have mirrors like we did, glass mirrors. They had metal, polished, brass mirrors but they could see themselves. But the reason a Pharisee couldn't look in the mirror on a Sabbath is because he might look in the mirror and see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and plucking it out would be work on the Sabbath. Alright, these are the laws the Pharisees came up with, alright? So, you know, it just gives you an idea how crazy they got. If a Pharisee had a sore throat, he would normally gargle with vinegar. But they couldn't do that on the Sabbath because gargling was considered work. You had to just, if you had, you just had to take the vinegar and swallow if you're, you've got a sore throat on the Sabbath, alright? I mean, this is the kind of stuff they came up with. It was just crazy. They built laws upon laws and they thought they were so spiritual because they were keeping these laws. They were fools, is what they were. Now, the best description given in the New Testament of a Pharisee was given by our Lord in Matthew 23. The last week of his life, the last week of his ministry before he dies, he really just blasts these Pharisees. Alright? In Matthew 23, 1-3, it says, Then Yeshua spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Now, he says these guys, they put themselves in the chair of Moses, a position of authority and a position of interpreting the law of Moses. But as we're going to see, as we look through this chapter briefly, if you go through Matthew Matthew 23, it's very clear these were very, very corrupt men. So why would Yeshua tell his disciples all that they tell you to do, do and observe? Why would he tell his disciples, you, you make sure you follow these corrupt men, and all their crazy interpretations of the law of Moses, why would he say that? Does that bother anybody? Well, the answer, there is an answer. Some scholars think that it should be all that he tells you, not they tell you, and that he is referring to Moses. In other words, they seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all Moses tells you, you do and observe, but don't do according to their deeds. See, they're corrupt. You listen to Moses. Don't listen to these people. That's an important distinction. Because these people, the Pharisees, were telling the disciples, don't believe in Yeshua. So how can we be obedient to their teaching if they're telling us, don't believe in Yeshua? Now, I want you to notice what Yeshua, gentle Jesus, has to say to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, all right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside of here are beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Oh my word, that sounds like something Trump would say, Right? <laughs> He'd just blossom. He's not afraid to say stuff. Well, the Lord wasn't afraid to say this stuff either. Listen, if a preacher said this today about a political leader, he'd be arrested for hate speech. This is Yeshua. You hypocrites. And I'll tell you the truth, Trump just says it like it is. People, that bothers people. Because we're in a day of, uh, we got to be really careful because we don't offend anybody. You know? I mean, if you get offended, that's your problem, okay? Offended doesn't hurt anything really, all right? You just got to get over some things, all right? And we're so worried about offending everybody that we can't say or do anything anymore. And you go back a few years and some preachers had some really hard stuff to say, okay? They came down, if it's true, say it. You don't have to worry about being politically correct. Yeshua goes on, he says, you serpents, bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Now, that's, that's hard speech, okay? Let me just add here that Hell is a bad translation here, alright? It's Gehenna, alright? It's the city dump. You know, we see hell when we think of a place of eternal torment and fire and that, the Bible doesn't even teach that, alright? So that's not in the scriptures. Hell's a bad translation. It should say Gehenna. Morris has a note here on the Pharisees that I think is really informative. He states this. The Pharisees had no vested interest in the temple, which was rather the domain of the Sadducees. A Pharisee would, accordingly, not have been unduly perturbed by the action of Jesus in cleansing the temple courts. Indeed, he may possibly have approved it, partly on the general principle that anything that put the Sadducees down a peg or two was laudable and partly in the interest of true religion. I thought that was kind of interesting that they didn't have a part of the temple that was more run by the Sadducees. Well, not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he tells us he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, in this context, this is a technical phrase for a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, in other contract texts, it could mean a leader of a local synagogue, but here it's referring to the Sanhedrin. And according to the Anchor Bible Dictionary, our English rendering, Sanhedrin, comes from a Greek word which literally means a sitting down with. Now, this term is found in Greek literature And in one of several general words, it's used for governing assemblies. It's referring to a court of law, basically, in Israel. It was, in a sense, a court of law in the New Testament, uh, on the New Testament, and also the Jewish oral tradition, the Mishnah. There appears to have been 71 members and a high priest who served on this assembly, this Sanhedrin. So we'll say 72 members. Now for all covenant people this assembly was probably an outgrowth of the assembly which was ratified the covenant with Yahweh in Exodus 24. And in that historic event Moses as the covenant mediator leads Aaron and his two sons, 70 elders and 70 elders up the mountain of Sinai and they eat a sacred meal in the presence of Yahweh. So they had this court, this was the high court that made the decisions of things that happened in Judaism. Now the authority of this court had been quietly limited by the Romans, because the Romans were, you know, in control. The Jews were under Roman domination, but they still allowed them to do their little thing, okay? They could do just about anything, their courts, but they couldn't put someone to death. Rome had to make that decision if someone could be put to death or not. But it was still very symbolic. It had a lot of significance to the Jewish people. So he's part of this court. So as a Pharisee, as a ruler, Of the Sanhedrin. As a teacher, Nicodemus represented the essence of Judaism at that time. He's the pinnacle. He's at the top of the rung. He's a formidable man in the religious system of Israel. In fact, he is probably one of the most formidable people in Judaism of his day. Because notice in verse 10 what Yeshua said. Yeshua answered and said to him, Are you the teacher? There's a definite article here in the Greek are you not a teacher, but are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So he he's at the top. He's a leading man in this apostate system at the top of Judaism. And that's what he, Nicodemus represents. All Judaism, alright? Now, i got to say in favor of Nick here, he's a very unusual Pharisee because he has a measure of open-mindedness. Alright? He's he's questioning. He's asking some questions. Most of them wouldn't come near Yeshua. They just wrote him off. But he's like, hey, I, I got some questions here for you. And verse 2 tells us, this man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, this man came to Yeshua by night. What is the significance of coming at night? I love MacArthur's comment here so i I just got to share this with you i thought it was he says much has been written on the fact that he came by night pages and pages and pages and pages let me tell you what it means it means this he didn't come during the day (laughs) (laughs) now that's theology at its finest okay i mean that's doing some serious digging and pulling up some good stuff. He goes on to say, that is what it means. (laughs) Okay? That's the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of what it means. If you ask me why did he come at night, I don't know. More, I don't care. (laughs) Well, unlike MacArthur, I do care because I don't think he put that in there just because he needed some more space to take up. You know, it wasn't like the Lord said, hey Lazarus, I need you to write an essay on, on the Gospel of John, and I need to have this many words. And so he's like, I've got to add some more words. This thing keeps coming up short. No, every word has meaning. It has significance. So why does he tell us he came by night? What's the significance? I don't know if we can really answer that, but there's a lot of different areas we could look at. The pillar New Testament commentary gives us a lot of options. I think they're great. So let's look at what he says here. He says, Why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night is uncertain. Some have thought this reference at night is nothing more than a personal Reminiscence of a Historical Detail. That could be part of it. I mean, Lazarus is a first-hand witness. So he's remembering this. He goes, so yeah, it was nighttime when he came. But he remembered it historically for a reason. I think he's throwing it in there for a purpose. He says, others remind us of the text demonstrating that the rabbis studied and debated long into the night. So some say, you know, well, Rabbi studied at night, so he's here coming, you know, to study with Yeshua. Others think, you know, maybe... He came at night because Yeshua is always crowded with people during the day. I want to talk to this man. I want to have a lengthy theological discussion. So I'm coming at night so we don't get interrupted. He says, still others speculate that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in order to benefit from the cloak of darkness, fearing to be identified in, public, in the public mind with a Galilean teacher and wonder worker. I think that's a good option. He's like, hey, he's at the top of Judaism Here's this radical Galilean out here stirring up trouble. I'm going at nights. I don't want my buddies to see me, you know, connecting or asking this guy questions. I don't want that to happen. But the Anchor Bible goes on to say the best clue lies in John's use of night elsewhere. And I think this is significant. (laughs) This is how John, this is how Lazarus works in this gospel. All right. In each instance, the word is either used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness Or if it refers to nighttime hours, it bears the same moral and spiritual symbolism. Doubtless Nicodemus approached Yeshua at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. And see, I think that's the way Lazarus works. He tells us night because all through this gospel he contrasts day and night. You know, night is the darkness. Night is not understanding. The day is light. Is light. It's understanding. And so he's making a contrast. He comes at night because this guy's the pinnacle of Judaism, but he's clueless about Christianity. W. Hull Harris writes this, Out of the darkness of his life and religiosity, Nicodemus came to the light of the world. John probably had... Multiple meanings or associations in his mind here as he often does. And I agree with that. He probably had several things he's trying to tell us. But, you know, he came at night because he is in darkness. And he comes to Yeshua and he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How do we know? Nobody can do the things you're doing. I mean, he's doing these miraculous things. Turning water into wine. He's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's doing all these things. Now, rabbi is a title that Nicodemus would have been used to hearing people call him. He's the rabbi. He's a chief. And he comes to Yeshua and he calls him rabbi, indicating he's recognizing something of Yeshua's authority. He sees there's something in this man. Now, the construction of the Greek text suggests that the emphasis is placed on the words from God. That's at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek. You came from God. All right? We got that. He understood Yeshua is just more than a typical, ordinary teacher. All right? He's got that much. He can understand that. He says here, we know. And he uses the first person plural, not I know. Well, we know. Who's the we? Well, some say he's representing other Pharisees. You know, maybe Joseph of Arimathea. He was another one in this crowd. And, you know, he, he was interested in the Lord. So maybe, maybe him and a couple of his buddies are sending him to, you know, get the scoop. Others suggest that he's speaking of current popular opinion. You know, a lot of people say, this man's from God. Look what he's doing. So we know you're from God. Here's a man. Here's a member of the most hostile, the most aggressive, the most angry, the most hateful enemies of Yeshua that he had on earth, the Pharisees. And he's saying... We know that you come from God. Nicodemus' courtesy and his lack of hostility mark him as a very non-typical Pharisee. This guy seems to be, you know, I, I want to know what's going on here. He says, no one can do the signs you do unless God is with them. You know, what's really cool here? This is a testimony to Yeshua from his enemies. This is not his friend saying this. You know, it's pretty cool when your enemies can speak well of you. You know, they might not like you, but they say, look, I gotta give him credit. He's honest or he's got some integrity or whatever. His enemies are speaking well of him. We know, they say, that God is with you. And he says, that's it. God is with him. This places Yeshua in the same category as Old Testament persons like Moses or Jeremiah, who both were said that, you know, that God was with them. Now, in chapter two, the signs led people to believe in the name of Yeshua. We see that in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, during the feast, many people believed in his name, observing the sign. He's doing miracles, and people are seeing that, and they're believing, they're trusting Christ. Now remember, the Tanakh said, when Messiah came, he would perform mighty miracles. That's how they would identify Messiah. Messiah. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to cleanse the lepers. They saw the signs happening and they believed. You are Messiah. We trust you. But for Nicodemus, who saw the same signs, all they meant to him was, hey, you're a good teacher. God must be with you. Some believed in Yeshua when they observed the signs. Others don't. What causes the difference? They're looking at the same things. Two people looking at the same events. One group says, we believe. The other group says, nah, I'm not really sure. Some, same signs. Same signs. Some believe, some don't. Why? What's the difference? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Yeshua answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see, perceive, Understand the kingdom of God. You see the signs, but you can't understand them because you are not born from above. You have to be born again. The difference here is the new birth. Without being born from above, you cannot, nobody can understand spiritual things. That's why you can share the gospel with somebody and they just get all excited. No, that's awesome. That's the greatest thing I ever heard. And you share it with somebody else and they're like, I don't care about that. It's spiritual. Yeshua starts out here, truly, truly, literally this is Amen, Amen. And Yeshua's doubling of this term is found only in John's Gospel. It appears 25 times in John's Gospel. What's the significance of this? Well, in English, Amen carries the meaning of so be it, or I believe, or that's true. But in Hebrew, Amin is a Hebrew acrostic from the first letters of three Hebrew letters. El, Melech, and Ne'emin. Which is translated, God is a trustworthy king. So this is a statement of affirmation. The word amen itself is used for the first time in the book of Numbers chapter 5. Anybody know what's happening in Numbers 5? This is a strange story. Okay, This guy thinks his wife might be cheating on him. Okay? So he can't sure not he can't prove it. Never didn't catch anything. So he brings her to the priest. He goes, I think she's cheating. So they make up this formula, like you know, they put this formula, and the woman has to drink it. All right, and if she hasn't cheated, then everything's fine. All right, but if she has cheated, then this is what happens. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thighs waste away. And the woman shall say. Amen? Amen. In other words, the woman's like, yep, God's a trustworthy king. Let Him do that to me if I've been cheating. That's the idea here. It also is used in response to prayer in Psalm 89. Uh, We see it in Deuteronomy 27. It's swearing that God is trustworthy. He will keep His oath. And He will help us keep the oath we swear. Now, to have an appreciation of the original meaning of this, we need to look at Revelation 3. It says to the angel of the church and led to see you write this, the amen." Now, this is referring to Christ, he calls him the amen, and then watch what he says, "The faithful and true witness." Christ is the faithful, true witness. And this double amen is found in the initial position in the sentence. It's a way of drawing attention to Yeshua's significant statement. It's a trustworthy statement. It's a revelation that you better catch. When you see truly, truly, amen, amen, you've got to pay attention to what He's saying. Now let's back up for a second. Notice what the text says. Yeshua answered and said to Him. What's the question He's answering? Let's go back and look at verse 2. Rabbi, watch for the question. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Yeshua answered and said, What's the question? You see it in verse 2? There's no question there. He's making a statement. He's just saying. And Yeshua goes, well, let me tell you what. What? What are you doing? Look at verse 25. And because he did not need anyone testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Yeshua knew what's in the heart of this man and he answered a question before he even could ask it. And it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So he knew what's in the heart of man. He knew what's in Nicodemus's heart, and so he answered the question before he could ask. You think if you're Nicodemus, you're this high ruler, and you know you're coming to this low Galilean, but you think something's going on with him, and you're going to try to question him. And you get up to him and you give him this compliment. You know, you always butter somebody up before you, you know, lay them out. You know, you're giving him this compliment, and all of a sudden he says, "You must be born again." He's like, "What?" I didn't ask the question yet, but this is what's in his mind. Think of how that affected Nicodemus. Well, who am I talking to here? He knows my heart before I even ask it. Because I think Nicodemus' question was, how can I know for sure that I'm entering the kingdom of God? How can I know for sure I have eternal life? Those are great questions. And he he thinks, okay, Yeshua's come from God. That's obvious. So let me ask him some questions. And Yeshua's answer is, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when you say born again, boy, everybody knows that concept, right? That terminology is very, that's evangelical lingo. Have you ever heard? Born again Christian, right? People got in the habit for a period of years there. We're a born again Christian. That is redundant, people, okay? If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have been born again. So to say born again Christian is just redundant. All right, it's foolish. I'm a Christian Christian. You know, I'm born again, born again. It's the same thing. But we're trying to, like, Christian's not good enough anymore. You say you're a Christian, that's like, are you a born-again Christian? Oh, there's different kinds? I'm a not-born-again, or I'm a born-again. No, there's only one kind. So we don't have to use all this extra terminology, alright? It's redundant. Now the Greek verb here translated born, it's in verses 3 through 8. Eight times this word born is in there, because this is the focus of this section, being born. They're all derived from the verb ganao. It's the normal word for being born. All right? Eight times in this section. We're going to see it. Now, the word translated again here is anothen, which has a double meaning, as pointed out by Zane Hodges. The word may mean either again, and that's how most people translate this, born again. Or it can mean from above. Now, Lazarus uses this word anothen, Four times in his gospel, he used it twice here in chapter three, and he uses it in chapter nineteen and he used it in the end of chapter three and thirty one. In the latter two cases, the context makes it clear that he's making the meaning here is from above. So in verse three and verse seven, it could mean either but it seems to be he's talking about you have to be born from above. All right? It has to be a spiritual birth. This phrase, when it says you have to be born from above, it's pointing to God as the source of the birth. All right? You've been born naturally. You have to be born spiritually. <coughs> the only other biblical reference to being born again, it's only used here and used by 1 Peter. Peter says, You have been born again, not of the seed which perishable, but imperishable, That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Here, Peter uses a different word. Anaganao, he uses here. While onathin points from above, this is more the source of the new birth. This um, onaganao would point more to the fact that this is a second birth. You need another birth where onathin points to something from above.